Welcome to Africa Insights, a podcast from New Lines magazine. I'm Kwangu Liwewe. On today's episode, what's really behind the UK-Rwanda migration deal? And why is the UK insistent that Rwanda is a safe haven? The recent controversy surrounding the UK-Rwanda migration deal has thrust Rwanda's human rights record into the global spotlight, triggering debates about ethical dimensions of asylum policies and migration solutions. The plan, initiated by former Prime Minister Boris Johnson in April 2022, proposed to deport illegal migrants arriving on British shores to Rwanda, which is over 4,000 miles. This plan was challenged by human rights groups and, in November, the Supreme Court agreed with the Court of Appeal that Rwanda was not a safe third country to send asylum seekers. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak then published emergency legislation, which aimed at allowing the deportation to Rwanda to move forward, sparking a debate within his Conservative Party, which sowed deep divisions. However, British lawmakers voted in favor of the bill on December the 13th, deeming Rwanda as a safe country. The proposed legislation gives the courts the right to ignore any injunction from the European Court of Human Rights to block flights taking asylum seekers to Rwanda. We will get flights off the ground, we will deter illegal migrants from coming here, and we will finally stop the boats. Moving away from internal British politics surrounding the deal, Africa Insights takes a look at the plight of Rwanda's internal refugees, its exiled refugees, and the country's human rights record as a whole. I'm joined by British journalist and author Mikela Rong. But first, joining me to shed more light on this is General Kayumba Nyamwasa. He was the former head of Rwanda's intelligence and chief of staff of the Rwandan army from 1998 to the year 2002. He served as Rwanda's ambassador to India until 2010, when he fled to South Africa, where he remains in exile. General Kayumba Nyamwasa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and thanks for hosting us. Let's start with your background. You were born in Uganda in exile, and you grew up there, and later you were instrumental in the formation of the Rwanda Patriotic Front, which went on to crush the genocide in 1994. After that, you served in various capacities until you fled to South Africa in 2010. So you've been in exile twice in your life, and hence you know what it means for one to flee from their country. Now, with regards to the UK-Rwanda migration deal, the Rwandan government has come out strongly in support, saying Rwanda is a welcoming country and only knows too well about the plight of asylum seekers and refugees. How does this statement resonate with you? Of course, that is a fuss. It's a fuss in the sense that uh, if the Rwandan government and particularly President Poro Kagame was serious about what he's saying, in 1982, President Obote bundled Rwandese from Uganda and forced them into Rwanda. And when President Museveni took over government in Uganda, President Habyarimana again pushed those Rwandese back into Uganda. And most of them are part of what formed and fought for the RPF and put Kagame in power. Now, put it in the reverse. If Kagame had been put on an aircraft, and possibly at that time, taken Somalia where there was a war, because remember the wars in Somalia and the wars in other places, how would Kagame, how would he have felt? Currently, Rwanda is a very unstable country, involved in wars in Congo, and you pick people from the United Kingdom 
and take them to Rwanda by force. These people are not going to Rwanda out of their own accord or because they want. These people are being forced out. Kagame having been a refugee, he should understand that refugees should not be reformed. Refugees should only be able to relocate on their own will, but not because somebody else is forcing them. So essentially, it is a moral fa facade and it is against international law. Now, picking up on what you just said, you've talked about what's going on between Rwanda and the DRC. There are Congolese refugees living in Rwanda, and earlier on in this year, we heard President Kagame talk about them, saying they're not welcome in Rwanda. He later did change his statement. But what's your take on the refugees who are currently living in Rwanda and their plight, as opposed to those coming in from the UK who'll be housed in luxury? Well, it shows the whole uh, hypocrisy of the Rwandan government and the particular of, of President Kagame, who's the Tutsi. These refugees from Congo are Tutsis. And, he's, and he says he's fighting for them because they are Tutsis. These people have been in camps, living under uh, uh, refugee tents. He has never given them any, any sort of accommodation and has never settled them. If he cannot settle people from the neighborhood, and particularly those who are Tutsi, where does he get the kindness to settle Afghans, people from Vietnam and from Syria? And he cannot be able to settle people from the neighborhood, and particularly who are Tutsis. And some of those people, their children, fought for him to be in power. So the whole thing is a facade. It's just because the whole thing is just trade. There is nothing moral about it. Everything is about money that Kagame is getting from the, from the United Kingdom. It has nothing to do with any humanitarian aspect whatsoever. It's interesting that you picked up on the financial aspect. So far, £240 million has already been paid by the UK. All of this without a single person being sent to Rwanda. So one school of thought is that this is a publicity stunt by Rwanda to be seen as a major play in world affairs. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if it is publicity, then it is publicity for people who are insensitive and the people who have no heart. If a country rejects people and they tell them to take, take them to Rwanda is a punishment, this is what the British are insinuating, that if you come by boat and come to Britain, we shall take you to Rwanda. If Kagame therefore thinks it is a publicity stunt for him, it is very negative. And even for the British, they know Rwanda is a dictatorship. They know very well uh, the UK is nine times bigger than Rwanda. Their economy is probably 50 times bigger than the economy of Rwanda. Now, why do they really get the audacity, the moral obligation, and the, the moral thinking that you can send people to a country like that? Look at how Rwanda is rated by the World Bank, by the IMF, and even human rights organizations. Where do they have the audacity to send people to that country and call it safe for people to resettle? So essentially, if it is a publicity stunt, it has been negative. And I don't know how other Africans are looking at Kagame. Because the whole essence is they are trying to say these people are undesirables, either because they are black or they are brown, they shouldn't stay here. You don't want to hear anybody called maybe Ukrainian being sent to Rwanda. It is either Syria, either Vietnam, Afghanistan, but nobody European. So it shows you exactly that Rwanda is a dumping place to be able to serve the whole repressment theory that is being uh, propagated by the extreme right, by the extreme right, both in the, in the Western world. 
Would Belgium also fall in that category? Because they're in talks with Rwanda about a similar deal. Well, I, I, would, I would suspect most of those uh, Western countries, rich Western countries, now have got a, a dumping ground because I know the Danish had try, were trying and they were negotiating. I don't know whether the, the deal has been reached, but I believe the very moment this one passes through, lots of European countries will know that there is somewhere where they can go to pay money and the people can be dumped and maybe some other African countries who also need the money may follow suit. So essentially, it's going to be reverse slavery. While black people were picked from Africa and taken to the Western world, now they are going to be picked from the Western world to Africa. And Rwanda is providing the lead. There's also the notion that some Western countries are trying to shed a positive light on Rwanda, seeing that they turned a blind eye during the genocide. Now that Rwanda is deemed a beacon of reconciliation and development, the West want to be aligned with Kigali. Your thoughts on this? That's a lie. They know very well that there is no reconciliation in Rwanda and there is, it's not even a pillar of development. Rwanda has got the biggest number of refugees in the whole of the East African and Central African region. Go to Malawi, go to Zimbabwe, go to Zambia, South Africa, all these other countries, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Burundi, Kenya, you will find Rwandan refugees. So how would you call that country stable and a pillar of development? Kagame should have concentrated on returning the Rwandese people, negotiate with those who opposed him, instead of being Afghans. The whole thing is hypocritical. There is no stability in Rwanda. How can you say Rwanda is stable when it's at war with the Congo? You don't take people to a country which is at war. So essentially, those people that you talk about, the British have always been the first to condemn Kagame on human rights. How do they turn overnight and say Rwanda is a safe country? It's all hypocrisy. We concede that okay, Chigari is clean. We concede for the last 30 years, and all other countries in the world have developed, and Rwanda has also developed in some form. But the whole exaggeration of, of our development is, whole, is a facade, and they want to know. In any case, this money that you see that they are giving out, a lot of it is probably being stolen. Stolen and shared out between Kagame and his lobbyists. Most of these people who are behind the, the whole process are Kagame's lobbyists, and they are paid from the same amount of money that they're getting from Britain. Now to learn more about Rwanda and its international reputation, I'm joined by Michaela Rong. Michaela published Do Not Disturb in 2021, a book which focused on the 2014 murder of Rwandan defector Patrick Karagea, for which the Rwandan government denied responsibility. Michaela, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure. Let's start with talking about Rwanda being among the poorest countries in the world. And this is according to UN figures as of August 2023. In the same breath, it's a country held as a model of reconciliation and development. Rwanda boasts of reliable services, it's clean and tidy, and its roads are safe. In your own words, you previously said, and I quote, it does look like the Switzerland of Africa, but it's an extremely repressive and frightening country. End of quote. Would you care to elaborate? Yes, I think... Um Essentially, what you've got in Rwanda is uh, uh, people use the phrase Potemkin village because what you have is um, is a facade. You have a, a beautiful um, 
surface appearance of a developed, extremely modern African state. Um, it's amazing to me quite how often uh, people who visit their diplomats, journalists, uh, tourists, they, they will stress how clean it is. And so that's the most important thing that, that matters to them when they're visiting Africa. Um, so yes, it looks clean. It's very secure. When you go there, you are very aware uh, of the fact that they are either policemen or or army soldiers uh, regularly stationed on on street corners. Um, uh, the roads are beautiful. Um, it's got all these new high rise buildings, um, but uh, that doesn't mean that it is a country that respects the rule of law, where human rights are respected, where there's a free press, or where elections are are transparent and fair. And nor does it mean that it's a place that many of us here in the West or, you know, in the industrialized North would want to live in. And I think people are often fooled by this very slick appearance. And and that's why that slick appearance exists. I mean, there is a reason that it looks as wonderful as it does. But how have they managed to maintain this facade, as you called it? Uh, well, since the genocide, the Rwandan government has benefited from generous amounts of, uh, of foreign aid. Um, and a lot of that spending, uh, that is enabled by that foreign aid is spent on Kigali in a rather small area, a small part of Kigali. If you approach, um, Kigali from a different part, you know, not via the airport, uh, you see, uh, the slums of Kigali, which exist. If you go into the countryside, you are confronted by, uh, really quite shocking levels of, uh, poverty and malnutrition. Uh, you know, this is, this is a very small part of a small country, uh, but it's the part of the country that all Western uh, visitors are uh, you know, people make sure that that's the part they see. So Rwanda entered this deal with the UK to receive asylum seekers, house them, feed them, educate them, all this while they process their applications. However, within the country, there are refugees from the DRC living in camps. And early on in the year, President Paul Kagame had threatened to evict them, but he later backtracked on this. Do you have any indication of what life and reality is like for these refugees? Uh, yes, I think there's a stark difference. What we're going to see, if 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 ever any asylum seekers um, are sent from the UK to Rwanda, is there'll be a two-tier system. So on the one hand, we've seen these rather lovely housing estates that Suella Braverman, our former Home Secretary, toured with the Rwandan officials. I mean, I would be happy to live in them. You know, they've got Wi-Fi, they've got parking. You know, I, it is a bit puzzling to me why asylum seekers would immediately need parking places. Uh, they've got basketball courts. You know, they're, they are lovely places to live. Um, but that's not how Congolese refugees uh, or Burundian refugees or refugees from the Great Lakes area are, are living. Uh, and in fact, we know that in, in 2018, uh, refugees in, in, in one of those camps, Gazeba, were so distressed by their living uh, circumstances. I mean, they, they were hungry and they were, they wanted bigger rations and they staged a demonstration, um, uh, outside the offices of, of uh, the UNHCR saying we need more food. And the Rwandan security forces fired on them. Uh, and uh, at least a dozen people were killed. And then the people who had organized that demonstration were jailed for really hefty prison sentences. I mean, some of them are still in prison. They're going to be there for the next 10, 15 years. So, um, there are two tiers. There's one presentation for, for us here in the West. And there's the reality of what it's like if you're an African coming from the Great Lakes and you happen to be a refugee in Rwanda. 
So the UK government is essentially turning a blind eye to the Supreme Court's ruling. But why are they so adamant about this deal going through? Is it to save face after spending so much money? Yeah, I mean, the, the British government have gone completely silent. And, and what we've seen in the past in recent years was that along with the states, um, they, they had expressed very open criticisms of Rwanda, its human rights record. Uh, they had mentioned in, in particular disappearances, the treatment of the, the free press, uh, torture and detention, issues like that. And, and since they unveiled this asylum bill, all of that has gone completely silent. The Brits no longer have a word of criticism to express um, regarding uh, Rwanda and its human rights uh, record. Um, but but what's going on here in Britain is is really it's British politics. It has very little to do with Rwanda and nothing to do with, uh, for example, Rwanda's military intervention in neighboring Congo uh, or its record of transnational repression. This is about uh, two branches of the Conservative Party wrangling over uh, the legal dispensation between Britain uh, and the rest of the world. So uh, the, the extreme right of the Conservative Party wants a really, really tough deal on Rwanda and the moderate wing of the Conservative Party wants to make sure that Britain uh, remains part of the European Court of Human Rights uh, and that what it what it unveils uh, for asylum seekers in, in Rwanda is acceptable under international law. Uh, and those two wings are, are busy having it out. And it's uh, it seemed quite possible earlier this week that, that that row could have actually toppled Rishi Sunak, the prime minister. So he survived, but a lot of people uh, are saying he's just survived for today. These, these uh, tensions have not been resolved because he's basically promising all things to both both sides of, of his party, the right and the centrist people. Um, all these issues will come back to bite him uh, come January, you know, after everyone has got the Christmas holidays out of the way. What about the ordinary British people? What do they make of all of this? Is it even a talking point? It's definitely a talking point. But what I find uh, annoying as somebody who is quite interested in the Great Lakes of Africa and who's written about Rwanda and many other African countries is, is that the, the talk here in Britain is all about the politics within the Conservative Party. There's this kind of Machiavellian plotting going on and conspiracies and briefings um, and then, you know, agreements to vote in a certain way and, and people are, have been called back, you know, a, a climate minister was actually called back from, uh, from COP because, you know, he had to take part in this, this crucial vote. So that's what the discussion is all about. And it's obsessive. I mean, the British press is, is sort of talking about this uh, and Gaza and almost nothing else. But, you know, it, they're not talking about what's happening in Rwanda, what it's like to live in Rwanda, Rwanda's political scene and what Rwanda is doing in the Eastern DRC. And, that, you know, that seems to me the great, the great absence from this debate in Britain, that nobody's really interested in what's happening in the Great Lakes. It's a completely domestic dispute, but it just happens to have coagulated around the Rwanda asylum policy. Hmm, interesting. Let's circle back to Rwanda. What would you say is at the core of their interest in this deal? Or are they laughing all the way to the bank with the millions of pounds already paid to their government? Well, they're definitely laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, we had the Home Secretary, uh, the Shadow Home Secretary yesterday, yesterday putting the figure of 400 million, uh, 400 million pounds, not dollars, 
that the Rwandan government can expect to get, uh, you know, in total from this deal. Um, so they've done very nicely out of it. And, and it's worth remembering that Rwanda, like many other African countries, had seen um, its aid from Britain shrink really dramatically in recent years uh, because the Conservative Party decided it simply couldn't afford to pay as much in foreign aid as it had been up till then. Um, so this is a great way of Rwanda getting back onto this sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a fully, fully formed, um, you know, aid program from Britain because it's just getting the aid in, a, in another way. There's very little transparency, by the way, in how, how that money is being spent in Rwanda. We're just told that it will be part of integration efforts for these asylum seekers. But since none of them have actually moved to Kigali or been flown there, why they, all that money has already been transferred and why it's already been spent is really a mystery. Um, but, but from, apart from the money, I think there's a bigger game being played here, which is that um, Paul Kagame, the, the president of, of Rwanda, has always been very aware that, you know, he's from a poor country, um, uh, he's reliant on aid, it's it's poor it's uh, it's poor it's small it needs friends abroad and he is always super alert and super aware of the uh, the cards he can play to make himself important allies abroad and the card he's played in the past is uh, Rwanda's uh, readiness to send peacekeepers around Africa to deal with the Islamic the the threat from Islamic jihadism, which is a real threat and something that the West is extremely concerned about. But recently, he's discovered that immigration is another concern for the West, something that keeps Western governments uh, awake at night. And so if he can say to Western government, like Britain, and, and now we hear that maybe Denmark may be considering something similar, uh, Holland might do something similar, Germany has also mentioned this. Um, if he can say to them, listen, I'll take this problem off your hands. You know, we know immigration, uh, we know in Africa, immigration is not popular. We know you want to get rid of these people. Let us deal with this for you. Then however strange that offer is, in the context of this tiny little country which is overpopulated and has already got a very heavy caseload of refugees. However unconvincing, you know, Western governments will leap around his neck and thank him, you know, uh, and then uh, in return be strangely silent about his human rights abuses. If we look at the flip side of that, isn't this deal putting Rwanda in the spotlight about its safe haven status? You're right. And originally, I thought surely they won't really want to go down this route, you know, because it will mean that that um, the human rights regime, um, the rule of law, uh, Rwanda's role in Eastern Congo, all of these things will come under scrutiny, international scrutiny. And why would the Rwandans want that? You know, they've got a lot of things they want to sweep under the carpet. Um, but I think um, that uh, that they they rightly calculated that a lot of those issues would not be examined. That in a way they were buying the uh, the silence of the British government, uh, and it's worked in their favour. Um, I think there's another issue as well with Paul Kagame that I think he likes to be talked about. Um, he's a man who uh, who loves to be invited to Davos. You know, he loves it when Kigali becomes um, can host all these international conferences. He he very much relished and sort of got stuck into his role when uh, Rwanda was um, African Union chair. Um, he's currently got the uh, they're chairing the Commonwealth, for example. Um, you know, he really relishes the spotlight. He likes to be constantly talked about in the international media to an extent that I think is fairly rare in Africa. Uh, and so I think he's enjoying every moment of this. 
Now, let's say if it wasn't Rwanda chosen and it was Malawi, for instance, in your opinion, is this agreement a humane solution to the world's refugee problem? For me personally, and I'm not an expert on, on immigration, I think um, there are genuine concerns in, in Western Europe about the, about the level of immigration we are likely to see coming up with um, climate change, making life so difficult for people in, in vast zones of the world. Uh, but there is also, I think, a, a real awareness here, and it's one I would share, that this isn't the way around it. There's something very distasteful about this. Um, uh, it, it's morally repugnant. It also means that, you know, Britain would be in danger of violating the Refugee Convention on all sorts of international um, agreements, uh, human rights regimes that it's signed up for. Um, so this is a very repellent uh, way of dealing with uh, asylum seekers. Um, and a lot of people here are saying, and I would agree with them, you know, you need to deal with the gangs that are smuggling people into across the, uh, across the channel. How hard can it be to deal with people who are um, providing these dinghies in which people often end up overloaded and drowning in the channel. You know, this, this is organized. This, you know, it can't be beyond the wit of man to, to sort of see where these boats take off, who's ordering these dinghies, these rubber boats, you know, where the money uh, that these um, asylum seekers is, is paying ends up and to target those criminal gangs. Uh, that has to be a, a more sensible way of dealing with this than, than sending people, you know, what is it, 4,000 kilometers to a very poor, overpopulated um, uh, African country that really shouldn't be signing up for this deal and is only doing so because it, it sort of suddenly presents, it can present itself as a sort of saviour to Western European governments. So Paul Kagame has been president of Rwanda since the year 2000, and the country goes to the polls next year in 2024. In the last election, he won 90% of the vote. Now, what are you hearing from the ground about what the atmosphere is like ahead of the polls, and more specifically with regards to this deal? Not much is coming out about the public's opinion on this issue. Have you heard anything? Well, what I often say to people who want to know what public opinion in, in Rwanda is, is um, good luck trying to find out what it is. Because um, if you if you go to Rwanda, you know, you will often notice that it's clean, tidy and very secure. But you will also notice that people seem to uh, feel that they are being constantly monitored and watched. Um, uh, and in those circumstances, in the circumstances where you have no free press, um, you know, every media outlet is controlled um, and people who have tried to express critical views of government have ended up either being killed or fleeing the country or in jail. You cannot expect ordinary members of the public to be open in their, you know, and honest in their views. Uh, of what of Paul Kagame and his uh, and his presidency. So uh, you know, I can't think of anything harder to establish with any accuracy than the opinion of the Rwandan public, the genuine opinion. Um, they are in a, a pre-electoral um, period. Um, I mean, it hasn't yet kicked off, but everyone knows that there will be elections next year. Uh, the last elections for Paul Kagame, he won. Uh, supposedly won 98% of the vote. I think um, here in, in in my country, most people would regard that as a ludicrous figure. I mean, that's the kind of figure that, um, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein, I think, used to claim he, he won in elections. Um, and ironically, those are the kind of figures 
that um, Kagame's predecessors, who you know his his rebel movement toppled and denounced as dictators, they used to also claim that they had won those kind of uh, um, uh, victories in the in the polls. Um, I think we can expect something very similar. Um, uh, the main opposition party leader, um, Victoire Ingabire, because she was jailed for eight years on supposed insurrection charges, she can't currently run again for the elections. Um, and I think, I assume that was why she was jailed, so that she would be disbarred from standing. And I know she's asking, um, the government if they will, uh, uh waive that, um, that legal requirement, um, uh, but I, I would have thought it's extremely unlikely. So Kagame would be running against token opposition parties, and that's the way he likes it. Now, Mikel, on a personal level, you have written extensively about the region and Rwanda. Are you allowed into the country? I haven't tried to go back to Rwanda since my book was published, but I really wouldn't try either because um, I've seen what's happened to independent um, journalists who, who live there, who try to work there. A lot of them now are, are living uh, over here <laughs> in the UK. Um, quite a few of them were killed uh, and um, uh, a greater number of them are, are in jail. Um, and uh, I don't, want to go down the same route as those journalists. So I won't be asking to go there. Um, I think it would be uh, ridiculous in any case, because as soon as I went there, I would be followed and monitored and tracked throughout my time there. Um, and so anyone I met, I would be putting them in danger. So I won't be going back. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite a few uh, journalists, analysts, academics who know a lot about Rwanda are in the same position as me, that they don't feel they could work there freely or safely. Uh, and so they won't be going back. Mikel and General Nyamasa, thank you for your insights. Please do note that Africa Insights did reach out to the Rwandan government to take part in the podcast, but did not receive a response. This week's episode was produced by Patrick Hagen and hosted by me, Kwangu Liwewe. For more on Africa's stories and podcasts, visit newlinesmag.com. <laughs>